So good to have you with us. For those of you who are uh, joining us for the first time, it's just so encouraging uh, in the concourse between services, just meeting so many new folks. So it's great to have you here. Great to have you who are joining online. Now, just a little bit to get to know me, um, uh, pastor here at Grace Spring. Um, I was raised in the house of a librarian. Okay, so being raised in the house of a librarian, you were kind of encouraged to do what? Read. read. I didn't like to read very much. And so as a little kid, I looked for the books with the great illustrations. Any of you there with me? Even as adults, how many of you are there with me? Um, but, you know, there was a series of books I liked because I thought the art was a little bit intriguing and the poetry was pretty um, I thought, interesting. It was Dr. Seuss, okay? In Dr. Seuss, um, near the end of his life, he wrote a book entitled, Oh, the Places You'll Go. You know that book? Okay, well, here's what was so great about reading that book, because it starts out like this. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers, soar to great heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang, and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. And wherever you go, you'll top all the rest. Oh, that is so great. Go, yeah. Except when you don't. (laughs) You're right. Because sometimes you won't. Sorry to say, but sadly it's true. The bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You'll get all hung up on a prickly perch. And your gang will fly on and leave you in a lurch. You'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump. Chances are then that you will be in a slump. And when you're in a slump... You're not in for much fun because unslumping yourself is not easily done. Yeah, that's profound, isn't it? Unslumping yourself is not easily done. I don't know about you, but I've been in slumps before. And when I'm in a slump, I desperately try to unslump. And I think so many times when it comes to matters of faith, when it comes to matters of faith, there can be slumps that we find ourselves in. And that is okay. It is a natural part of the journey called faith. I think so many times we do a disservice as pastors when we kind of communicate this message that, Okay, you, you, you follow off to the Lord, you respond to Him, saying, follow me, and you have this idea that everything in your life is going to get better and better and better, and that the will of God will get easier and easier and easier, and then all of a sudden, what happens every so often along the way is you get into a slump. And this is how many of us have gotten into slumps. For many of us, some very, very long slumps. It's because we come into settings like this on a regular basis. And in settings like this, we continue to point people to God's Word. So you go, okay, well, I'm going to open up God's Word. And then you find a text 
like this in the book recovering today, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. I hear this quoted so many times here of late because people like holding on to this. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and you go, yes, man, that is my new life verses right there. And then we pray. And then the doctor diagnosis comes in, and it's not at all what we prayed. And if you have walked this journey of faith, and especially been part of a church like us that we hold unwaveringly to, this is the authority of God. This is the inspired Word of God. This is the good and perfect Word of God. But we live in a society today that said, yeah, right, are you, are you, seriously? You really believe all of that? And then it kind of causes us to rethink our journey and then go, yeah, yeah, well, uh, you know, does this hold true? And what happens is we can fall into the trap of using God's Word and reading God's Word and taking some things from God's Word out of context. We always have to remember that God used these various authors to write the 66 books that together put together the most incredible, beautiful tapestry of the thread of God reconciling a sinful people to himself from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. It is a unified theme. It is a miracle. But along the journey, there are some very difficult truths. There's some very difficult things that you should always not just read the Bible to read. You should read with your brain engaged. And, and, and sometimes it can be so, so difficult. But especially when you're in a season of life that Jeremiah was in. Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah is uh, going to have a message that only God can change a human heart and here's the reality about Jeremiah's life. If you ever feel unproductive or that your walk of faith doesn't seem to be yielding much fruit and you get discouraged by that, I want to encourage you to consider the prophet Jeremiah. Because this guy served for over 40 years and in his entire story, maybe one, if not two, believed in the words in which he said. So what you mean to tell me is that out of a 42-year ministry, there were only maybe two converts. That does not seem at all like a fruitful ministry, does it? That doesn't even sound like they were probably called towards ministry because the unfruitfulness of it but we are going to see, as we take a look at Jeremiah, he was a prophet that God had called from what chapter 1 says, called from his mother's womb, gave him everything he was going to need to do the work that God has called him to do. And if you find yourself discouraged, I pray that you find great encouragement 
from this prophet named Jeremiah. Turn in your Bible to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1. It's on page 745 in the Bible in front of you. Again, if you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible. It's our gift to you. We want you to get into the Word of God. If you ever have questions relating to anything that was covered in a sermon, please feel free to throw your questions out to me. Have no greater joy than either myself or a team to be able to jump on that because we want you to engage in this Word. But see, Jeremiah is serving in the darkest days of Israel's existence. The darkest days. Last week, you said, well, Isaiah, man, he had a message of of hope during this time. Well, Jeremiah was 100 years after Isaiah. And Jeremiah absolutely, unfortunately, got to see all of the destruction that Isaiah was warning about, and that God would warn the nation through the prophet Jeremiah. But here is, I I, I want, for those of you who are new to the Bible, I want to give you a, a historical context, because context is key. The nation of Israel was formed It was started through the seed of Abraham, we're going to talk about, but then the nation was in bondage in Egypt. God miraculously delivers his people. He creates a nation. He gives the law. He does all of these things. And then what he does every step of the way is he introduces this concept, this term, covenant, You'll read this word covenant in the scriptures. Covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties that agree in promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities. And so what's important to note here about covenants is there's a couple different covenants we have read so far in our journey up until this time. The first covenant was the Abrahamic covenant. That is when God calls this guy Abram out of one place into a new geography and says, from you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to make your name great. He said, people will know who you are. And so, but, but that kind of covenant was what's called a unilateral covenant. That was God saying, I'm initiating this, and if you break your part of the covenant, I will still honor the covenant. That's the Abrahamic covenant. But then a nation is formed, and as a nation is formed on Mount Sinai, God gives the law, and he gives the foundation of which this nation would be built And at the end of this, in in, in Exodus, in the giving of the law, God enters into a bilateral covenant, meaning if you do this, then you will receive blessing. But if you don't do what I say, well, then there will be curses. Now, when it comes to sin, I've said this before, it's like sin has prepackaged consequences It is never good to toy with sin. It is never good to keep sin as your pet. Never. It might look very innocent when it's young, but that thing will grow up and rip your throat out. Okay? Sorry for the imagery. But the nation under this bilateral covenant is now 
horribly representing the name of Jehovah God. Remember, God said to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But when this nation is embracing what the rest of the world is doing, going after other gods, that is not a good thing. Because God says, it's through you, my people, that is to be a light to the rest of the nations. And so, when God gave that uh, covenant, that, that, that binary um, Mosaic covenant to his people, the God of the Bible defines who he is, his nature, his character, and he does this in Exodus 34. I'm going to read this to you because I think in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it gives a, a beautiful picture of the God of the Bible. And it goes this way. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Man, isn't that good news? How many of you want to worship this God? Yes. I mean, that's all good news, right? But notice that there is not a period, but a comma. And here's what follows the comma. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Say what? No, I, I want to go back to, and I want to really camp out on the verse 6. But then he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, again, this doesn't mean that the that that God is paying for your great-grandfather or great-grandmother's sin. No, it just says when, as a, a parent, let's just say you do something that is uh, a sin. Let's just say you commit adultery and you're not faithful to your marital covenant. Will your kids have to pay a very dear price for that? Yes, they will. And some your kids might say, I don't want to get married now. Or I'm going to be very distrusting of the one. You, you see how one sin, the effects of that carry out to the next generation. And then how that generation copes. Then the next generation. You, you see one generation, all that. And, and so God is just saying, yes, uh, th there is going to be judgment to pay for guilt. And we don't like that. So the amazing thing about Jeremiah is we are confronted with the reality that we, as even a Christian culture today, don't like to want to deal with. And that is the doctrine of God's wrath. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad you came today? Man, let's go to church and let's hear about the wrath of God. But I tell you, I believe you're going to find great encouragement from this. So if you look at Jeremiah, um, the very first paragraph of chapter 1, uh, again, it just, uh, th there are three kings mentioned, but it was a total of five kings in which he served the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. Again, there's, there's Judah and Benjamin represented in the southern kingdom. Prior, the northern kingdom had been already carried off into exile 
and now the Babylonians have, have risen to power. And then look at verse 4. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That sounds so great. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Again, I love that. I love the honesty of Scripture because it's a reminder that God uses the unqualified. How many of you ever feel unqualified? Yeah, man, I do all the time. And God still can use me, especially because of that. So if you feel like you're God's gift to humanity, then you probably have a tough road ahead of you. Um, but then God reproves him and says, don't say that you're only a youth. Right now he's about in his 20s, okay? So he considers himself a youth in his 20s. But here's what the Lord says, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And he has a very, very, very difficult reality because now he has to preach a message of judgment and do nothing but preach a message of judgment. Isn't that great? And, it, and, and then nobody's listening to him. And here's why nobody was listening to him. If you've read through the book of Jeremiah, which I trust you all did because you're reading your growth guides and everybody is reading the book before we cover it, right? Liars. I, that's why it was so silent, because you guys, uh, hey, I read this book like four or five times this week, just to make sure. I've got so many doggone highlights in this, but it, it's just such a, a masterful piece of literature here. But you know, in, in, in reading through this, you just see time and time again that Jeremiah, I mean, he has to pay a very dear price. And there was times where I love, even in his journey, where he totally felt like giving up. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 20, basically, if you read Jeremiah 20, he is, uh, he's, he is put in the stocks, and he wants to give up. And then in Jeremiah 20, Verse 9, he says this, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Isn't that a beautiful line? He's just saying, Man, I am paying a very dear price for this message of judgment. And all the priests and all the prophets and, and all the political leaders, they're turning a, a, a deaf ear to the message. And that is that God is rising up the Babylonians and the Babylonians are going to march on Jerusalem and they will destroy Jerusalem if you do not repent. But all these other prophets are going, no, 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 come on. Look in your history books. Remember just over 100 years ago. Remember the Assyrians. They tried to get Jerusalem. But you know, we are God's people. And look, look at our temple practices. Our temple practices are alive and well. Surely God's got to be smiling on us for all of our sacrifices. We're still doing everything God commanded. But when you read God's word, 
is God more interested in sacrifices or in obedience to his word? Obedience to his word. And so God is saying, I am raising up the Babylonians. That just sounds unheard of. Why would God rise up the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem? Jerusalem, beloved Jerusalem, to be a beacon of light to the nations. And God says, it's because you are profaning my name. You are living no different than the world. And I have called my people to be set apart from the world. Does it kind of sound like our day? And I think when you dare not go into that second part there, but who will by no means clear the guilty, I think it's because the church has so embraced sin, so embraced the world, rationalized saying, well, I'm going to connect to the world, but I've got to connect this way. But we lose our distinction. It is costly. So five truths related to God's wrath. It's a hard doctrine, but it is a good doctrine. Without understanding God's wrath, you will never run to the cross of Jesus. That's why we cannot afford to just put off to the side this hugely important doctrine. Well, for one, when you read through Jeremiah, you will see that God's wrath is coming in the form of judgment called Babylon. And he's going to continue. And we're going to see through this that God has wrath. Why? Because he says, you're not fearing me. Don't fear what men could do to you. Fear what I can do to you. But again, we have to have a right view of the wrath of God. Yes, there is the wrath of God. But God's wrath is an expression of his goodness. It is an expression of of his goodness. See, in chapter 2, even chapter 2, verse 13, there is an indictment. This is almost like a legal setting in chapter 2. And God says, through his servant Jeremiah to the people, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Basically, in Israel, there was only two water sources. The water sources were either the springs that would fill the rivers and the lakes and all that. You could have living water or you would accumulate the, the rainwater. And they would hew out just different hollowed rocks. And, and sometimes these rocks would have these fissures in them. And, and, and the water would leak out. And so they would climb in a leaking cistern and try to patch it up and fill it with water again. He says, why are you doing that when you could have the real thing? Remember Jesus, woman at the well. She just kept pursuing all these things. And Jesus says, hey, you drink from me and you're never going to thirst again. Aren't those good words? But God's wrath is an expression of his goodness. When I look over at, um, let me see here, even 525, he says, your iniquities have turned the good things away and your sins have kept good from you. See, it's like a loving father who says, I am, I am disciplining you because I don't want that 
to be how you live your life. A, a good father will correct the child that they love to say, okay, it's going to be costly if you live a lazy life. It will be costly if you live a dishonest life. Yes, you might seem to get ahead, but it's truly going to cost you at your soul level. See, God's wrath is an expression of his goodness, but God's wrath is also an expression of his justice. Now, this does not mean that every bad thing that happens to you is the wrath of God, but it does mean that I believe there are many times where we choose to ignore something that is very much the judgment of God and we turn a blind eye to that and we don't do what that judgment was designed to get us to do. You see, God gives us hurt to go after our hearts. See, so many times when everything in life is comfortable and normative, you just kind of go through life not really depending on the Lord. And many times you'll find yourself thirsting after other things that when you drink from those cisterns, it only makes you thirstier. And God says, no, I want you to drink from me. Drink from me. And so all throughout, you, you are seeing this message time and time again. It is a loving God who is trying to get the attention of his people again. And see, all of this, it just seems like bad news. Nobody is listening to anything that Jeremiah is saying. I, I just, I can't even imagine that. But you know, Jeremiah was faithful. And yes, he's known as the weeping prophet. But don't think that he is a pansy prophet for being a weeping prophet. He's weeping now, I, I don't know if you would have the endurance that Jeremiah has. I mean, Jeremiah, remember, this is going to be over 40 years. He is going to teach and teach the judgment of God is coming unless you repent, repent, repent. Well, uh, we don't like what you say. We're going to put you in prison. We don't like what you say. We're going to beat you up. We don't like what you say. And he kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. That's why sometimes, honestly, as a pastor, I hear a phrase abused that it just causes me to, mm, because I know it was written in a very popular book years ago where it's like, uh, see where God is moving and join him in the process. I get it, but that is a very Western way of looking at things because that means God calls me to those things that are always fruitful. And I believe many times God calls you, Terry's a ministry where he's called you to be more faithful than even fruitful. We'd never have any um, missionaries in Europe if they were called to be fruitful. And trust me, I've talked to missionaries in Europe who said, yes, our mission board, they're pulling us because we just don't have enough converts in the amount of time that we've been given. And it's just like, man, that's tragic because God always has a voice, even in the darkest of places. And even though people spurn the message, God will always say, because he is a righteous judge, that when the end of time comes and people said, hey, I never heard, oh, no, 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 you did hear. That's why I tell people who come to, and, and, and tune in, I said, I'm either your best friend or your worst enemy. Because when the gospel is proclaimed, you have a choice each and every week. Am I going to choose to follow or am I not? And the Holy Spirit of God will say, 
You had an opportunity. You had an opportunity. You had an opportunity. But here's where the news gets really good. That God chose to let his love overcome his wrath. See, that's the good news. Is God a God of wrath? Yes, God's a God of wrath. But he chose love to have more weight than the execution of his judgment. That is good news, folks. Because I need God's mercy every day. Don't you? Every day. See, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Remember, that bilateral agreement they broke. Though I was their husband, figurative speech, because God's people are always likened to the bride of Christ, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What is Jeremiah writing about? Something that's going to not happen for 600 more years. Amazing. This is going to be a, a, a new covenant. A new covenant. And, and, and to put some meat on those bones, we can escape God's wrath only through Jesus Christ. Oh, Man, isn't this politically correct today? We can't help the message of Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why did Jesus, why was he the only one that was able to say this? Because he's the only one who lived a perfect life. He was the only one who was called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That indictment against you is something that was put on Jesus' shoulders. And in fact, if you don't believe me, John 3.36 says this. This is Jesus' own words recorded by John, who says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wait a minute. What do you mean the wrath of God? God's a God of love. Yes, and because he's a God of love, he's a God of wrath. He's got to do something with the sin that leads to death. He's got to do it. And he does this in the most amazing way. He sends himself in the form of Jesus. God with flesh on to live that perfect life and to pay that death penalty once and for all, leading to the big idea of the cross of Jesus as God's central means of reconciling a sinful people to his sinless self. Oh, that's good. See, I, I think, unfortunately, way too many of us have become numb to the reality of the wrath of God. And we think it's not that big a deal. No, sin is a horrible deal to the God who created you and designed you with purpose, with beauty, with significance, with all of that. And he sees that sin is hijacking and robbing his creation from life. 
He says, man, I don't want that to happen to you. In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, and I'm going to read it from a, a paraphrase, the message, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to put it on the screen for you because it's beautiful language, but it's talking exactly about what Jeremiah was prophesying 600 years prior. Romans 3.21, the message puts it this way. But in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. For there is no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record of sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he's always wanted us to be. And he did it by the means of Jesus. This is why our mission is helping people take a step closer to God. This is such an imperative mission for us, folks. Because God, God in his infinite wisdom, infinite mercy... He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And so look at the difference between the old covenant and the new. The old covenant, it's, it's do this and live. Follow the law and live. But the new covenant, believe in Jesus and live. Allow the righteousness of him perfectly carrying out that and, and being attributed to your behalf. How about this one? The law condemns. You've broken the law. You're guilty. Man, you, you've got to pay the price. But grace gives righteousness. See, the, the law curses for disobedience. Grace redeems from the curse. The law exposes distance between God and man. But grace reconciles men to God. You see, the old covenant condemns the best person. Even our own righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. But the new covenant freely justifies the worst. Isn't that incredible news for you and I? Jeremiah would have to live seeing the consequences of the people that he loved turning a deaf ear to his message. And he was having to see the destruction, what all the people of God thought was going to be improbable, if not impossible, and that is that God's judgment would come upon his very own people and the prized jewel Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, five funeral dirges that are very discouraging. It was like a funeral procession. It's very, very sad, but in the midst of that, you have this in Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
See, this is the Holy Spirit of God assuring Jeremiah, yes, you're discouraged. Yes, you're discouraged. And you have every right to be discouraged. But even though my people will be taken off into exile for 70 years, there is still hope that they will return and I will again make things right. I will honor my part of the Abrahamic covenant and I will make a way for the church of Jesus Christ to be born. That is the work of God, that God would then invite we as Gentiles into the covenant family of faith. And he has given us his Holy Spirit, but his Holy Spirit is only given because a holy God can only indwell a clean house because he is a holy God. And how did he cleanse you and me? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that we find ourselves cleansed and therefore able to be acceptable to come into the presence of a holy and great God. Folks, this is an incredible invitation. It's an incredible invitation for you wherever you might be right now. But I know um, I've shared this story before, but I want to close with a, a story. It was a true story in American history. In 1833, there was a case. It was the United States versus Wilson. And a guy by the name of George Wilson, he was uh, caught in grand theft and in other matters, and he was imprisoned. And uh, the sitting president at the time granted him a pardon. I believe it was Andrew Jackson granted him a, a pardon. And he did not accept that pardon. He just said, no, I, I'm, I'm going to stay here in this prison. And, and those in the jail were like, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You've been given the presidential pardon. He said, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to accept that. And this became such a big deal that it went to the Supreme Court. I mean, absolutely amazing story. It goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court made the decision, and I can't find my notes that had that. But anyway, bottom line, Supreme Court made a decision to say you cannot force somebody to take a pardon that was offered. They have to willingly accept the grace given. And if they so choose not to, then that is their right. And then I think how sad it is so many people in this world have been given a pardon, a pardon from having to experience the wrath of God and for the record, none of you could ever face it and come out the other side looking good. But Jesus did and that pardon is an invitation for you wherever you might be. And here's one thing I have learned from being a pastor. There's nothing I could ever say, I could ever say to change a human heart. I think human beings dupe themselves into thinking, hey, look who I led to the Lord. No, no, no. God used you as a tool. But only God can change a human heart. Only God can do that. And because of that, folks, we can keep it is possible to be a part of Grace Spring or to be a part of whatever church you call your local family of faith. It can be possible for you to do what Israel did, and that is embrace the symbol 
and not the substance. See, the nation at this time of judgment embraced the symbol of, hey, we're doing sacrifices every week. But God says, yes, but I don't have your heart. Don't have your heart. Return to me, your first love. Return to me, return to me, return to me. All you need to do is repent. That's all you need to do, but you got to be humble enough to do it. He says, that's as easy as it is to say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior to go from an enemy of God facing the wrath of God to the family of God. And it's putting your faith and trust in the cross of Jesus Christ. What is keeping you from that? May today be the day of your salvation. But you know, we want to pray for that. We need to be a church praying for that. I want to invite one of our elders and his wife, uh, John and Mel DeCryder, up here on the stage because they're going to lead us into a, a time of prayer because we cannot convince ourselves that we have any power in a, of ourselves because we'll continue the arduous task of trying to unslump ourselves. But you know, it's the Holy Spirit of God who can do what is necessary to move this church and to move your hearts where only he can direct. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys.